Two winters ago, my oldest son and I signed up to take a fly tying class. You learn over time that if you're going to spend winters in Maine, you better find something to do. The instructor was very friendly, very good, knowledgeable, and he wanted to encourage the class by letting us know that when you attempt anything for the first time, it might take a while to get the hang of it. The first few flies you tie, he said, aren't going to be very good. Those are the ones you give to your friends. <laughs> well, in fly tying, you can mess up the first few, and it's no big deal. But that's not the case with raising children, <laughs> is it? There is a lot at stake. And so we want to try to do well in our parenting right from the start. The hopeful news today is that we can because the Bible is filled with good guidance and advice for how to do it. Last week, we looked specifically at two ways not to parent, two common, less than ideal approaches. The first was the parent-centered home, where everything revol revolves around and is designed to meet the needs of one or, or both parents. The second was a child-centered home, where everything revolves around and is designed to supply, or at least not get in the way of meeting the needs of one or more children, both of those approaches encourage lives devoted to one's self, which, as we noted from Scripture, is incongruous with the Christian life, which is meant to be lived for God. And so counter to the parent-centered and the child-centered approaches, today we're looking at parenting God's way. Now, whole books are written on this. We happen to have a few of them. If you're interested in any of them, please let me know, and I can point you in a good direction. But the aim of this message today, while it is to be a help for parents and to help us always to become more mature in Christ, the principles we're considering are not exclusive, exclusively related to parenting and hopefully can be applied in a more broader way in the desire to have a biblical home. Specifically this morning, we're going to cover four aspects of that biblical home, four commitments that we find there, a commitment to truth, a commitment to the gospel, a commitment to glorifying God, and a commitment to worship. Let's pray. Father, we ask, as we often do, that these words that follow would be your words, God, any that are not, let them fall harmless and be quickly forgotten. Because yours is the voice that we have come to hear, and yours is the wisdom that we need. And you promise to give generously and without finding fault. Show us your ways that we might walk in them. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Parenting God's way. If it's not centered on the parent or the child, what's it centered on? Or better, who is it centered on? Parenting God's way is centered on God. To parent God's way is to work at having a God-centered home. That's the gist of the passage that we read out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 a, a couple weeks ago. The language implies a consistent awareness of God, a consistent living in the presence of God. 
Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. He pretty much covers it all, doesn't he? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The God-centered home is saturated with God. And the concept of a God-centered home, Lou Priolo writes, is derived from the biblical principles that the purpose of every Christian is to glorify God. The God-centered home is one in which everyone is committed to pleasing and serving God. God's desires are exalted over everyone else's. Everyone in the family may be expected to sacrifice personal pleasure if God's will requires it. This philosophy teaches children to serve rather than be served, to honor rather than be honored, to give rather than to take. And faithful parents have the ability to shape a God-centered home. And therefore, when they do, it will include but not be limited to the following commitments. The first is a commitment to truth. Not just a commitment to tell the truth. That's important in a home, isn't it? Honesty is the best policy. None of us wants to be deceived or lied to. So a commitment to truth can include that. But more than that, a commitment to know the truth, a commitment to live the truth. You might recall when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate shortly before he was crucified. Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered him, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you remember what Pilate said to him? What is truth? Many since Pilate have asked that exact same question. And some with that sort of same bias behind it implied the belief that Truth is elusive, or maybe even that truth is non-existent, or that truth is dependent on an individual's interpretation, or different for every person. You've heard that, right? Well, that's your truth, and this is my truth. Well, the Bible has a different take, one that says there is, in fact, absolute truth, and it can be known. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus, in his lengthy prayer recorded in John 17, prays to his Father, sanctify them, that is, his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. Not coincidentally, Jesus is the word of God who became flesh to dwell among us. And he said, what? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The word of God is truth, revealed in Jesus, preserved in the Bible. So a God-centered home and a God-centered approach to parenting will be one where the word of God is known, taught, exalted, followed. That's the command of Deuteronomy 6. The word of God are to be taught to the children. They are to be spoken of in all circumstances, whether you're sitting, whether you're walking, whether you're lying down. You get the picture all the time, carried in the hearts of the children, figuratively written all over the home. Moms and dads, look for teaching moments. 
when you can instruct your children in how the events of the day or the unfolding of matters intersects with the wisdom of God, the providence of God, the mercy of God. When you do that on a regular basis, you are providing your child with a much needed larger picture of how life is to be lived in the presence of and under the direction of a sovereign God. Our scripture for this morning in Psalm 78 speaks to the importance of handing down truth, of sharing the truth of God with our youngsters. Verse 4 says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Albert Barnes writes about this responsibility. He says, we of this generation will be faithful in handing down these truths to future times. We stand between past generations and the generations to come. We are entrusted by those who've gone before us with great and important truths, truths to be preserved and transmitted in their purity to future ages. That trust committed to us, we will faithfully discharge. These truths shall not suffer in passing from us to them. They shall not be stayed in their progress, they shall not be corrupted or impaired. We stand between past generations and the generations to come. And we have a duty, a responsibility, an obligation, and a privilege to locate our children to help them see where and how they fit in God's grand story of redemption. The psalmist says he will repeat what our fathers told us. That, to me, inspires a question. Fathers, what are you telling your children? Specifically, what are you saying with your words? And nearly as important, what are you telling them with your life choices? It's possible, I think, probable that the psalmist in our text for this morning, use the term fathers as representative of parents in general, or even figuratively as the tradition of wisdom is passed down from ancient times through authority figures. And yet in other scriptures, and specifically Ephesians 6, 4, God gives a particular responsibility literally to fathers. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Fathers. Well, as near as I can tell, the Otis Baptist Church was founded because a group of ladies thought it was needed. And the men were willing to build the church. But their sense of a place in it, or even their sense of the need of it, did not equal that of their wives or their mothers. And it has not been uncommon in my experience, as we look around, at least in this region of the country, for spirituality and religion and the raising of children in these things to be viewed as a woman's domain, as a woman's work. But very clearly, we have an alternative view again in Scripture. It says, Paul says, fathers, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Most of the fathers in here are like, oh, gee. <laughs> Strike three. What's that mean? Don't, don't, don't impose unreasonable demands on your kids. By the way, that doesn't mean you're, you're never going to make them angry. You do know that. You will make them angry. Just don't do it on purpose to be mean. 
Don't exasperate your children with adult expectations. Don't place unreasonable demands on them. Don't deal so severely with them that they feel at once powerless and at the same time resentful. Don't ignore them so that the only way that they can get your attention is if they act out. Instead of doing these things, Paul says, bring them up. Bring them up. The phrase means to rear up to maturity, to cherish, and to train. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's dad's job. That's the father's job. He shares it, of course, with his wife. That's mom's job, too. But here specifically, it's dad's job to be committed to the teaching and the application of God's truth. Not something that we can delegate out or leave to somebody else. You do realize, beloved, that somebody's teaching your children. And if it isn't you, who do you want it to be? The Bible says it should be you. Teaching, committed to the teaching and the application of God's truth, which sort of begs another question, how much of that truth do you know? How much of that truth do you know? Can you diligently teach it? Because that's the command. Diligently teach. Pass it down. Share it. How much do you know? Remember last week I quoted Ben Watson. We can't give them, we can't give our children what we don't have. So moms and dads, if this is an area of weakness for you, then now is a good time to begin to make it a strength. Again, there is good news. If you don't know the word, you can know the word. If you're not familiar with the Bible, as familiar as you'd like to be, you can become familiar with it. We're learning that in our, in our biblical counseling cohort. We know that the primary struggle of, of biblical counselors just starting out is that they don't have the level of biblical literacy that they want to have in order to apply the Bible faithfully to counsel these problems. So how do we solve that? Anybody got a guess? We read, we study, we learn. And God delights when we do that. So don't, don't feel bad if you're sitting there and go, well, I don't think I know enough because there is a real solution and you can start working on that today. The God-centered home makes a commitment to truth, which naturally includes a commitment to the gospel. And that means, obviously, teaching our children the good news of Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is coming back. But a commitment to the gospel is more than this, right? More than just that orthodox statement that we find in 1 Corinthians 15. It involves living out gospel themes in the home. That's what I mean by commitment to the gospel. It's living out the gospel themes in the home. Love and mercy, grace and forgiveness, generosity, forbearance, serving others, sacrifice, making peace, all these and more are found in the gospel. All of these are found in the way that God deals with sinners, and so they must also be found in the homes of believers because they form the basis for how we are to deal with one another and how we are to interact in the world. We are to deal with others as God has dealt with us. Amen? 
That's why we forgive, right? That's the book of Ephesians. Being kind and tender-hearted and forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven you. We, we live out the gospel themes in our homes when we have a commitment to the gospel. What do we do with our sin? We know what to do with it. What will we teach our children to do with their sin? Because they will sin. How do we respond when we are sinned against? And what will we teach our children to do when they are wronged? When injustice comes their way? Family life is an ideal arena for implementing the gospel. And the reconciling practices of repentance and confession and forgiveness. And there will be plenty of opportunities to practice these in the family, right? There will be. What better place? So listen, don't miss these opportunities like a lot of us have. I have. The gospel is not the thing you believe to be saved and then put in the closet. Sometimes... Some of us have viewed it that way. There, I've got my salvation. Now I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and try to be good. And Paul wrote to the Galatians, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The good news that we needed for our salvation is also the good news that we need for our sanctification, for our holiness, for our growth in faith. And parenting is going to provide ample opportunities to share gospel wisdom and apply gospel principles in a variety of situations. So along with this commitment to the gospel comes a commitment to glorifying God. This is so very basic, one might think, do we even need to talk about this? Don't we know this? And yet it comes up again and again. And most humans are going to wonder at one time or another, and sometimes maybe several times through the course of a life, what on earth am I here for? What am I to do? What is my purpose? What is the meaning of all this? Have you ever asked those sorts of questions? Most people have. Now if somebody asks you, if your kid asks you, if your grandkid asks you, what, what am I here for? How would you answer? The answer is for God's glory. You're here to honor your maker. You're here to reflect him to the world. And this is a particularly necessary view in a society that is pushing the dangerous false knowledge, the dangerous false narrative of expressive individualism, sending our kids in droves down dead-end streets of self-expression, leading them to believe that there they will find the happiness that every human is in quest of. But that happiness isn't found when you become your best self. St. Augustine was right and he was wise when after himself having chased down those dead-end roads and come up wanting, he finally turned around and he declared, and by the way, he, he didn't just declare coincidentally, he declared and came to this conclusion after his mother, his faithful mother, prayed for him for 30 years. You can't outrun God and I don't think you're going to outrun the prayers of a mother. And Augustine, when he finally came to the end, of his self, said to the Lord, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. 
writing about Jesus to the Colossian Christians, the Apostle Paul said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And the earliest that we can teach our children that they are from God and that they are for God, the better. Did you hear that? The earliest we can teach our children that they are from God and they are for God, the better. And there is no reason for them whatsoever not to know who they are and why they're here. Their purpose on earth is clear. Yes, what they will be remains to be seen. But their overall purpose on life is clear. We find it succinctly in 1 Corinthians 10.31. And the beauty is we share it with them. We know their purpose because we know our purpose. We're all here for the same thing. And Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So in that biblical home, God gets the credit. God gets the praise. In the biblical home, God gets the glory. And finally for this morning, a fourth commitment found in the God-centered home where parenting is done God's way will be a commitment to worship. What is worship? Worship can be simply understood as declaring worth. What in your life has supreme value? What in your life has supreme worth? According to the scripture, this place of supreme value and worth belongs to God and God alone. Again, in Deuteronomy 6, and Jesus adds to it in Matthew 22, we are taught about the greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And Exodus 23 is quite plain also where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. So th think of this. Everybody worships something. We want to teach our children to worship the right thing. Everybody worships something. We want to teach our children to worship the right. You can even say capital R, right thing. Paul Tripp wrote an excellent book called 14, Parenting 14 Gospel Principles That Will Radically Change Your Family. And in it he says this, you are parenting a worshiper. You are parenting a worshiper. So it's important to remember that what rules your child's heart will control his behavior. Worship is the act of setting our heart on God above all, of declaring God's supreme value in our lives. And of course, it takes place in many forms and in many, many settings, but specifically it is commanded in Scripture in the weekly Sabbath and the corporate gathering. Think about that. Both the Sabbath, taking a day of rest, refraining from that gainful labor, trying to make your way in this world, and Lord's Day worship accomplish the same purpose. They reorient us to what is important. They reestablish us as creatures dependent on the Creator. And they encourage us to remember the goodness of God. Because it's in gathering week after week that we hear the gospel and we sing the gospel and we see the gospel 
the good news of God's merciful rescue through the life and death, burial and resurrection of his own son, Jesus. And we need this weekly worship. And we have missed this weekly worship. We need this, if for no other reason than something I mentioned again a couple weeks ago. We're forgetful. Aren't we not forgetful? We are so easily distracted, easily misled, sometimes easily confused. And so the writer of the Hebrews reminds us not to neglect the important act, right? Not just the worship, not just declaring God's worth, which you can do while you're driving, which you can do while you're mowing the lawn, that you can do while you're washing clothes. That's important, but don't neglect the gathering is what the writer tells us. Don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Make sure you get together what the Bible's teaching us so that you can be an encouragement to others and so that you yourself can be encouraged as brothers and sisters come alongside of you. Tom Rayner just wrote an article. The once a month churchgoers are becoming more common was the title of it. And in it he says this, one of the most disturbing trends we're seeing is the decreasing frequency of attendance. Two decades ago, a frequent church attender was considered a person in church services as activities or activities once or twice a week. Prior to the pandemic, the twice-a-month church attendee was considered active by most church members and leaders. But one of the trends emerging from the pandemic is the increasing number of once-a-month attendees. Now, mind you, I think all of us would say it's a little early to be drawing major conclusions about attendance patterns. Right, So that's a given. I'm assuming that you're all able to think that through and go, yeah, okay, Tom, we'll take it for what it's worth. It's just a bit of a grain of salt here because what his concern is, he just wants to know, is this going to be the way it is? Have people gone from being in worship with regularity? Some folks you know, if the doors are open, <laughs> lights are on, they're actually here. I have to chase some of those people away and say, come on now, have a more balanced life. From, from being, being here frequently to being here two times a month, which was sort of the norm pre-pandemic, now once a month. He says, no doubt the pandemic has led to the disruption of normal routines. The development of habits, some of them are good and others are not. Once a month worship attendance has never been the spiritual pattern, has it? It's never been the scriptural pattern. The Sabbath rhythm is a weekly rhythm of rest and recreation. So the gathering is a weekly rhythm of worship. Peter Newman has written also in a recent article, he says, for a forgetful bunch like us, the regular rhythms of church remind us who God is and who we are, that we are his people in his world. This, of course, has always been a reason Christians need church, but perhaps it's an even more pressing reason now in a sped-up digital world where attention spans are shrinking and allegiances are fragmenting, every day the Internet pulls us in a hundred different directions into different and competing tribes and stories. This was especially true in the last year when pandemic isolation resulted in our spending even more of our time on the Internet. In a world like this, increasingly artificial, distracting, and in a way unreal, if we don't carve out at least one day a week, to be powerfully reminded of our place in the Christian story, our already fragile, fickle, and forgetful hearts will invariably stray from this story. 
In a world so often distorted by online life, we need the clarifying force of God's word, read, preached, prayed, sung, and tasted to stay in and live out God's story. We need to remember it. And to remember it, we need to go to church. Well, maybe I don't have to say this to you because you're here. It's always interesting to preach a sermon out of Hebrews 10.25 to a group of people that are like, well, yeah. (laughs) But it doesn't hurt for us to be reminded, does it, that the weekly gathering is commanded and that we are warned not to neglect it and that we do so at the expense of our own personal spiritual health, which inevitably will be reflected in the health or lack of it in the whole, the family first, And then the larger family we know as the church. What matters supremely to any of us is going to be seen in what we give ourselves to. Do you agree with that? If we want to raise our children to love God with all their hearts, then we must model for them what loving God with all our hearts looks like. And among the many things that love for God is going to look like, one element is the commitment to regular weekly worship. Parenting God's way means helping our kids to know the Lord, to see, to appreciate, and proclaim the gospel, to glorify God in all they do, and to worship him. So I'm going to wrap this up. If you are a parent here this morning, I'll ask you to think for a moment on this. And I, would, I also want to encourage you when you say, again, as we do recognize some of us are parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. So we go, I don't know if this is really going to apply. Well, think it through. But if you're parenting today, I want you to think about this just for a moment. What is the one thing that you could do or stop doing that will bring about biblical change to your parenting? And I think that applies to grandparents and great-grandparents as well. And it kind of applies to relationships in general. What is the one thing that you can do or stop doing that will bring about biblical change? change. Related to this, a little housekeeping thought for those who, who are in the trenches of parenting. When do you assess how you're doing? Or how do you assess how you're doing? I say that with a little bit of a smile because sometimes, as I recall, the goal was survival. And the idea of assessing is like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Who has time for that? We don't think we have time for the big stuff. But, you know, you've got to take some time every once in a while to sharpen the axe. You've got to, or you'll just be pounding a dull old axe. It's going to take a lot longer. It's going to take a lot more effort. So I do want to suggest this, that you make evaluation a part of your parenting routine. We started this whole thing off by saying sort of, what is your goal? What are you aiming at? If you can be specific about the target, then you know what you're shooting for. You also know how to evaluate it. Are you hitting the target? You don't just launch the arrow and go draw a circle around it. What are you aiming for? How do you assess? I want to suggest that you ought to, su- to assess your parenting or your grandparenting, your relationships, on a regular basis. Because I think you've picked up on this by now. Life is pretty dynamic. In other words, people change, kids grow, we change, 
our needs, desires, wisdom, knowledge, all of this changes. It's constantly changing. So what made sense to do this last year may not make sense to do in a year to come. Definitely what works with this one over here, not going to work with that one over there, right? Those of you who raised more kids than one understand that dynamic. So I want to suggest that you set a date that once or twice a year you set aside some time specifically which for what could perhaps be a difficult but could also be a joyful conversation that you look at your spouse and you say, how are we doing? No, not in just a general sense, but when it comes to the kids, how are we doing? And if you're a single parent, then, then you have to ask that question, how am I doing? You might want to enlist a confidant and, and, and ask them to help you understand how it seems you're doing raising children. Don't be intimidated by this conversation because it is a good time to recognize the wins. And it's kind of important to have the encouragement of the winds, right? To keep moving forward and persevering and pressing on. So don't neglect that. There are good things happening for sure. There is fruit uh, from your effort, and you want to you see that. And it's also a good time to ask again that question of yourself and talk it over with your spouse or your confidant. What's that one thing I can do now? Or what's that one thing I can stop doing that's going to bring about more biblical change in this home? Because we want to make sure that we're parenting God's way.